Hi everyone, quick note up top before I start today's episode, we recorded this, we were so happy with the discussion we'd had and we were excited to share it online and then we realised when it came to editing the episode that Zarina's SD card had shit the bed. We have tried our best to jigsaw together audio from um, Zarina's original recording of the I Hate Dishum text with the Zoom audio that she unfortunately has had to use for this episode with my microphone audio. Um, it's not as amazing and good and clear as I would like it to be, but we really felt like the conversation that we had was important and fun and cleansing and just representative of how we feel about this text now. So we're going to publish it anyway. If you do struggle with the text at any point, please refer to the transcription on thewhitepube.com and I'm sorry, this won't happen again. We'll get to the episode. Welcome to the latest episode of the White Pube podcast. My name is Gabrielle Del Ponte. And I'm Zarina Mohammed. And we are back for another episode in this new series that we're doing where we revisit old White Pube texts because we started this podcast in 2020, but the White Pube actually started in 2015. So this is just loads of bangers, basically. Loads yeah. of stuff that caused a ruckus online that you might not be aware of but we are haunted by. (laughs) Today's episode is looking at the 2020 text by Zarina, uh, I Hate Disham. Disham is a restaurant in London. Where else? Is it anywhere else? I'm sure it is. It's all over the place. Are you crazy? It's all over over the UK. They've got them everywhere. It's It's like Mackey's now. Any major city you walk into where there are Indians, there's a Disham lovely like we did last time we're going to start the episode by reading the text out and then we're going to have a little discussion about it uh how was it received what would we say differently now do we just full-on agree with ourselves and yeah that's that's the episode so take it away i fucking hate disham To me, Disham represents a wave that's cresting right now this move of contemporary indian street food These restaurants pop up in Zone 1 London, on town centre high streets in Liverpool and Manchester. Maybe they do small plates. Maybe the young white waiter tells me, it's Indian tapas, so we recommend four to six plates between two people, smiley face. Or maybe they serve it canteen style, all on a tray and in papery fast casual packaging. Or maybe it's just a small menu of five starters, five mains. They've got no Coke, but they've got Karma Cola, £4.50 for one singular fucking roti flatbread. It's not just Disham. It's other chains like Masala Zone and Bundobust. It's one-offs like Roti Chai, Soho Walla, Cricket, Cutty Roll Company. The list goes fucking on and on. It's more upscale like Jamavar, Bombay Bustle, Cinnamon Club, Tamarind and Gunpowder. It's not even just street food, you know. That's just terminology that dissolves into PR and marketing copy, SEO keyword and vibey aphorism. It collapses contemporary Indian into street food aesthetics, uses phrases like street kitchen, market specials and hawker inspired. 
its lossy in a mason jar, stainless steel serving dishes for the aesthetic only. 70s Bollywood kitschy disco pop plays overhead. There's a vintage bicycle somewhere in the room. Pom-pom garlands with little bells on the end. All of that is laid against a hipster industrial aesthetic of exposed, exposed brick, piping and rough wood surfaces. Restaurants like this play a specific role. They deploy a specific aesthetic. They do a specific thing in the history of Indian food in the UK. And I'm going to tell you about it. Curry houses of the past were defined by colonial history. White tablecloths folded into neat accordions and fine silverware. Waiters in shirts, plastic chandeliers, leather-backed menus, Ruby Murray. The food was subservient to British taste. Korma, Jalfrezi, Bolti, they're all Bengali inventions. They are the conjured image of what British people might think Indian food is. It's a cuisine and coherent aesthetic in one. Both were defined by India and Britain's historical relationship, the power dynamic that exists between those two places. Bengali Indian curry houses are a testament to 20th century immigration history and the circumstances that facilitated it. The first significant wave of Bengalis came to the east end of London to work in the textiles industry. In the late 70s, when heavy industry was privatised and collapsed, they faced mass redundancies. As a result, many turned to opening their own restaurants and takeaways across the country. Alongside them, Indians came via East Africa in the 60s and 70s as countries like Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania adopted Africanisation policies. The Indians that were settled there had to choose between expulsion and displacement or, forfe or forfeiting the right to British passports. Many chose to come to Britain, preferring the stability of the great colonial motherland to the uncertainty of a new regime in East Africa that wouldn't afford them the same administrative privileges that the British colonial regime did. My mum was born in Nairobi, Kenya. Her first passport listed her nationality as British and her family moved to the UK in 1967 under those same laws. Indian immigrants in that wave set up shops and restaurants while others settled into white-collar employment. Both waves were precluded by incredible and overt racism from white Brits. With work specifically, there was a clear choice between facing explicit discrimination in the employment market and setting up your own business just to sidestep it. Obviously, there are questions about class and economic agency within that ability to set up shop for yourself, but curry houses and Bengali Indian restaurants were subject to a more implicit pressure towards subjugation on the market of consumer interest. White British taste and expectation shaped the food on offer, as well as the aesthetic that made up the specific ambience of a curry house. These restaurants catered to, an, catered to a white British taste and, in turn, held whiteness as a central concern. The Indian immigrants that came over from East Africa were coming from countries where they sat in the middle ground. They were privileged with administrative roles in a colonial infrastructure above the local black population, but never ever equal to the white colonial rulers that di dictated the terms of governance. This culinary subservience to white British taste and expectation was built off the back of that existing historical power dynamic, defining the Indian restaurants of that era. They served food that they didn't eat themselves, at home with family or for their own staff in the kitchen. They literally created a whole new cuisine with white British expectation at its centre. 
I say this without moral judgment or derision because any restaurant that served actual Bengali food back then would have flopped. Can you imagine trying to sell rumas to a white person in the 80s? The history of Asian immigrant communities became more settled in the 90s under the Blair government. It was less Enoch Powell, Rivers of Blood, less National Front skinheads going out packy bashing and more Blairite multiculturalism and the great melting pot Britain. It was Blair's foreign secretary, Robin Cook, that first declared that chicken tikka masala was now a true British national dish. And it was Labour MP Mohamed Sawa that sought to give Glasgow EU protective geographical status as its place of origin. There's a literal early day motion recorded in parliamentary archives that reads, this house records its appreciation of the culinary masterpiece that is chicken tikka masala, notes that it is Britain's most popular curry, which is quite incredibly batshit if you ask me. The chicken tikka masala being seen as symbolic of Britain's race relations and cultural identity at the time, vague tolerance but requiring assimilation into the wider landscape of British values, follows the trajectory set by Bengali Indian curry houses and the way they were defined by the wider political and historic context they sat within. I'm not reaching when I say that you can read a cultural history, a socio-political position through food. I've said it before in Eat the Rich, food is a disembodied signifier. It can speak of or through bodies without being attached to them and it can be read in this untethering. In that, I'm critical and incredibly sceptical about how Disham and this wave of modern Indian street food restaurants are read, what they will say about the communities and context they sit within when we look back at them. We are now post 9-11 and post-woke. Blairite neoliberalism has slipped into a full-on far-right government and nine years ago David Cameron declared that multiculturalism has failed. So what the fuck does contemporary Indian dining even fucking mean? In the same way that curry houses were defined by their relationship to whiteness and provided both a cuisine and coherent aesthetic in response, contemporary Indian street food places suffer the same. In terms of aesthetic, they represent a weird merging of a subcontinent... Of, of, <laughs> sorry about that, let me do that again. <laughs> in terms of aesthetic, they re- represent a weird merging of a, subco- of a subcontinental arte povera and a parallel hipster fetishization of industrial impoverishment. Fucking hell, what a sentence. <laughs> The stainless steel tallies aren't there for their cheap durability. They're there because they will make a a handsome Instagram flat lay, pendant light fittings and exposed piping overhead. There's a diaspora art sensibility to the way these two aesthetics are thrown together and juxtaposed. The kitschy folk aesthetic of heavy embroidery and garland strings and the clean sparseness of hipster minimalism. Sometimes that identification of diaspora art undertones is a bit on the nose. In Kentish Town's Bubblegee, when you walk down to the toilets, the staircase is lined with hate copy prints. All this aesthetic does in fusing the two things together is nod towards an image of authenticity, where curry houses conjured a colonial era pretense of grandeur, this aesthetic deploys a more casual assembly. It makes an attempt to condition an impoverished aesthetic render it familiar and cool, rather than run down and sincere. It's incredibly postmodern, to be quite honest. 
And then with the food itself, these contemporary street food restaurants are cuttingly symbolic of gentrification trajectories and processes. The upscaling of street food more generally represents the wider hipster search for the elusive authentic. It's a colonial approach to things. You're out there searching for novelty, something raw and real so you can take it, recondition it and repurpose it as something offered into a familiar shape to you and your cultural specificity. Meanwhile, the original thing is barely recognisable or only recognisable as something far removed from its original cultural or socio-political context. Regeneration and gentrification, the upscaling of street food, it's the same force at work. It's the same colonial and capitalist extraction model that has typified whiteness for centuries. 21st century white subculture specifically is defined by an inability to create anything for itself. Instead, it's characterised by a reliance on absorbing elements and remaking them in its own image. Its search for authenticity is prescribed by its inability to produce anything authentic on its own terms. If these contemporary Indian street food places mirror that logic of authenticity, then, as with the curry houses of the past, they are both defined by a cultural centrality of white taste and expectation. The problem specifically with this drive towards authenticity is that it never engages with the authentic subject it is seeking, rather than meaningfully consider oh sorry rather than re, rather than meaningfully considering what makes up the original dishes why they work and how they work it seeks to redeploy the shallowest components of them it primarily focuses on aesthetic and signifier disham describes its vadapal as bombay's version of london's chip butty this description rests on a physical likeness and equivalence rather than engaging with its functional origin as a handheld train platform snack for Bombay's factory workers and commuter class. It skips over its historic and cultural significance as a pow, a bun dish, how pows are a staple part of Maharashtra's urban working class food culture, how it's a Portuguese word that references the state's history of colonial intervention, and how industrial histories in cities like Bombay and Pune have driven its ubiquity in the state's food landscape. Chip butties have a similar history and origin too, but somehow in that description both things are collapsed and stripped of any socio-political context that could inform them or tie them to the living breathing people that eat them every day it's not just dishon that collapses and obliterates those specificities i've seen other pals called bombay burgers and other infuriatingly vague and bizarre names in other places that's why i hate dishon because rather than engage with regional specificity to honour it with a kind of political and thoughtful requirement, it engages with regional specificity to repurpose it into a blander, whiter version of itself. It's not better, it's just more effective at catering to the expectations of a white public, or of a contemporary white public. In my mind, at least Bengali Indian curry houses knew there was nothing authentic about themselves. There was a thrill in the duplicity and hustle of serving your staff a completely different menu to your white customers. Places like Disham are representative in a hollow and painful way. 
of an aspirational urbane Asian middle class that is divorced from their ancestral history and culture, actively seeking assimilation and acceptance from a white establishment. Contemporary Indian speaks more to the Asian relationship with whiteness, our current proximity and adjacency to it, as well as about contemporary metropolitan whiteness itself. Disham opened in London, but now has chains in Birmingham, Manchester and Edinburgh. Bundobust is in Liverpool, Manchester and Leeds. Mowgli is in Liverpool, Leicester, Manchester, Nottingham, Cardiff and Leeds. Glasgow has got a string of standalone examples in Tuk Tuk, Chaku Bombay Cafe and Usher's. And quite frankly, London's list never fucking ends. It spans across scale, from fast casual to upscale fine dining. This is a cosmopolitan trend. These street food places pop up where there's a significant and potentially middle class Asian community that has a history of interaction and integration with white communities. In these towns and cities, Bengali curry houses have been surpassed as lowbrow and janky trope in favour of places that present the pristinely engineered image of authenticity. I think this tells us a lot about white culture in these places, that white people in the UK's big cities are self-aware of their own whiteness, but fundamentally unwilling to deconstruct it in any meaningful way or recoil from it in order to actually experience something authentic on someone else's terms. I think it also tells us that Asian communities are no longer defined by a predominantly working class experience in the same way they once were. Since the 60s and 70s, social mobility has happened to some, often drawn along the lines of religion, region and caste. The, same, the, the current Tory government is packed full of Asians that have no problem enacting hostile environment policies that would see their own parents deported. And while I hate the model minority myth, it's not looking all that untrue when you read it alongside class categories and the identity markers that inform the workings of class in the UK diaspora. In this sweeping generalisation of Brit-Asian culinary history, I'm obviously speaking about the food and the restaurants that emerge into the mainstream of the great British food imaginary. While all of this was and is happening, there have been, and are, restaurants that existed to cater to Asian immigrant communities, their tastes, their conception of familiarity and their homesickness. Maru's Budgia House has been on Ealing Road since the mid-70s, my mum remembers meeting her sister there for lunch on weekdays. It was the halfway point between her college and the office in Alperton where my mussy worked. The black country has a long history of Asian pubs. They've existed since the 70s too, serving Asian foundry workers after their shifts at a time when colour bars precluded their access to white pubs. These sites in Wembley, East Ham, Southall, Smevick, Spark Hill, Handsworth, Pollock Shields and Melton Road, they are defined by a working class Asian experience and history. Any question about authenticity is misplaced. Authenticity is a concern for a white public in search of novelty and these places don't include a white centre. And that's what I wish could happen within the mainstream where Disham and the like describe an aspirational, assimilationist compromise, there are restaurants in Pinar that represent a kind of wild autonomy and happy agency within those disparate points. Though I hate Disham and all those other Indian contemporary places, I still wish they were better, happier, settled and different. It's not that I hate the mainstream, I just wish it wasn't so totally defined by the whims of a white public, 
I wish I didn't feel icky about the fetishization of authenticity. I wish that authentic wasn't even a term that we had to navigate in the first place. I wish I could take you all to a Gujarati sports bar and tell you about the East African specificity of Mughal and Zanzibar mix over a long pint of Kingfisher. I wish there were fucking dabeli spots in Zone 1 that slap as hard as the ones in Kingsbury. I think I wish we were the centre. The end. That was about 20 minutes long, that. So long. It's fucking 20 perfect minutes, though. <laughs> it's such a good text. It, it kind of, over the span of what however many years we've been writing things on the white pube, it feels like it's up there like in those moments where we decide to try and take on something huge like like my love island text like something that everyone just fucking loves and i think even we think maybe we liked at one point and then we just had this whole moment where everything came undone and then we have to sit down and write through that undoing i think that's what has happened here like this is just so huge and it probably felt like huge to write in the sense like you've got something massive off your chest and it's done so like perfectly and clearly and now it's done and now when anyone anytime anyone asks you about it you've got it there you've got it all written out you can be like read that I don't need to I don't need to explain myself I already did and I like that (laughs) do you want to hear something a fun fact though um, it's interesting that you say like that it's like a <laughs> writing through the undoing. That's a really nice way of putting it. But, but and I don't know how this changes that. But I like Bisham more now that I've written this text. Oh, interesting. Tell, explain why what I've. I think in the, in this text, I clearly hate it. Right, like it's called. I hate Bisham. And I've got like all of these grievances. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you're about to say. This is exciting. Just like I've got these grievances and now I've aired them. I think basically the process of writing this text was a process of me like reconciling this anger that I had nowhere to go. So I put it in a text and I think now I'm kind of like, okay, and what now? Like, like. Mm. That end line, I think I wish we were the centre. Well, we're not. So what now? Like, where do we go from here? They're going to exist. And, like, it's, I'm not single-handedly going to shut down contemporary Indian fast casual. You know what I mean? So, like, they just exist. And the food isn't bad. It's all right. It's just not what I am, like, looking for when I want like good Indian food but it is still all it's still all right not to be a Disham apologist now but like <gasps> it, it kind of like it just I've just reconciled that they exist and they exist in this category but like somehow drawing a line around them and being able to describe them in like a way that I felt made sense like airing my grievances through like figuring out where they sat in the culture I feel better I feel like I've got that off my chest. I feel like my grievance was with no one being able to identify where they culturally sat and like them being like miscategorized culturally. And now I've been able to do that. I've been able to sort it out for myself in my head. And like, I do feel better. Interesting. 
Does that make I sense? I do know what you mean. It does make sense. Do you think then that it's not that deep? Or do you, no, exactly. do you know what I mean? It's not that deep. I don't think it's that deep. And I think it never was that deep. I don't think when I wrote this, yeah. I was sat here like key smashing into like, I fucking hate Disham. I don't think it's, it's ever been that deep. Like I ate in Disham before this text. I used to go to dinner to like, I, it wasn't, it wouldn't be my first place of choice. You know what I mean? But like, I, I'd go to Disham with friends. Like me and my group of little Indian pals, we fucking love Indian small plates. That's like our thing. We fucking love small plates. And it's just like a like a gals that love small plates and it's like it's fine it's just we know where it culturally sits it's not our mum's cooking it's not our like grandma's cooking it's not even pretending to be though and it's just it's not that deep but it's not the one you know mm. but and in that not sense. that deepness mm. don't do you think sometimes when you or I do sit down to write something we like lean into that voice <sighs> and like like that clickbait I hate Disham title and my I'm never watching Love Island again it's dead to me like like as a stance because in a way it's more fun to write but also more engaging for the reader and like sometimes it's nice not to be as nuanced and to just land somewhere yeah really confidently yes I absolutely, yeah. completely, 100% agree. But I also think, like, it's not necessarily that it's just, like, funner to write, funner to read. Funner? Is that even a word? More, More fun. fun. <laughs> You're a writer, Serena. Come on. <laughs> it is quarter past 10pm. My brain turned off about five hours ago. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's super late. <laughs> every single brain cell I have is, like, out of office. But um, it, it's not just, just that it's more fun to read, more fun to write. I think it also, like, sometimes extremity pushes you into new territory. Like, the middle ground is so overpopulated by people. Like, that's where people's opinion is kind of most of the time. Like, my mum will go to Disham, have the black doll, say it's shit, but be like, we're still here. And she'll still go back. Next time, she'll still order the black doll. And she'll still be like, I don't like it. But, like, you know, it is what it is. And it's not, she'll embrace Mm. the nuance within her own decision making and her own reviewing process. And that's maybe that's just my mum, <laughs> but like I think it's other people as well. <laughs> um, I think like even I tend to do that. There's a reason why I, I you know, even though I hate or hate or hated Disham, I still kind of went back for like small plates club. <laughs> like it kind of it isn't that deep, but the, no one thinks it's that deep. So like within the space of like. Uh, text I can kind of put aside that like part of my brain that says it's fine just leave it and I can be like no I'm writing a text about Disham I'm gonna assume a position where I care about it and I, I like can put aside that part of my voice that says part of my head that says it's not that deep what if I took this mm. really seriously as like a yeah, writing exercise yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know because it does I don't think I'd have come to this conclusion about like um Sorry, that was my chair squeaking. Um, because I don't think I would have come to this conclusion or, or, or like made that connection between gentrification, Asian upscaling, upscale restaurant, Asian contemporary Indian, I forgot what I've even fucking called it in the thing, contemporary Indian fast casual, whatever it is, gentrification and like colonial 
uh, capitalist Legacy. trajectories. Yeah. yeah, I don't think those three things would have been connected. I wouldn't. Make, I am fundamentally more interested in that point about like aesthetics and the way that like it plays into like a diaspora art, art historical lineage or like like cultural trajectory. I think that's what I kind of want to take seriously rather than Disham as a business model, <laughs> you know? So in that sense, now in 2022, do you think this text is irresponsible? No, I think it's absolutely amazing. I smacked out <laughs> a fucking banger. 10 out of 10. I outdid myself. I still stand by every single word of this because, like I said, I, do, I obviously clearly don't think it's that deep. Like, I don't want Disham to shut down. Hmm. It kind of fulfills a purpose. It, it, do you know what? In like a very basic practical sense, it employs people. Like yeah. it's a business that like it's people's job, you know? I mean, it could also be a business in another way, but like, or like, you know, a multitude of other ways. It could change, but like, I'm not like, I'm not bothered by it. Like I just kind of, like I said, it's not that deep, but I stand by every word because I was right. Like I'm right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I said what I said. Did I stutter? I mean, yes, I did through the... But that's because it's 5,000 words long. Like, you know what I mean? Okay. One thing that readers may not know, but I think we can talk about because it was tweeted about recently, is yeah. that you were contacted by someone important after <laughs> this text was released. Who was that person? And please recount what happened. Right. So... Can I tell it as a story? Because I, I love setting story. the scene. Story time. So, right from the beginning, right? Right from the beginning of the story. I published this. I wasn't expecting it to go anywhere. Because in my mind, this was such a niche text. I didn't expect this to slap, you know? Like, I didn't think this would pop off. But, like, this was so niche in my mind. And I think I'd, I'd written food texts before that were, like, a bit more... This was different to the other, other food texts, right? I, didn't I, think... I don't have the number of how many people read it, but I can see that 22,000 people viewed it on Instagram. Like, you're reading it. 22,000? And that's just on Instagram, so however many on the website, who knows? Plus, oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. So you didn't think it was going to go anywhere, and it did. It did. People were kind of, like, into it. They loved it they thought I was a fucking idiot they really like there was there was like a there's a comment people. there's a comment on Instagram uh, IGTV video that just says please tell me this is satire because this is actually hilarious crying laughing face crying laughing face crying laughing face I mean do you know what I can't even be mad at that because I myself had admit, have admitted it's not that deep it's like an extreme position for the sake of like coming up with a new thought you know or like getting to like a, a, a like a, another point like a a final point that kind of just is actually deep or like making a new connection so I can't even be mad at that because it's not a satire but it's not it's not serious you know it's something else and I don't know what that is mm -hmm. but yeah people were like either like into it or they were mad bro they were <laughs> and it was it was like a group of people that were mad but didn't weren't really familiar with us as writers and I think if you pay 
if you like check in, if you know who we are, what we write about, if you're familiar with the oeuvre, like the back catalogue, the greatest hits, the other ones, if this isn't the first text you're coming to, then I think even if you don't agree, you kind of get where we're coming from and you kind of like, you can read through and not like piss your pants with anger. If this is the first text you're coming to and you don't know what's going on, other writers, especially, you know, especially in the art world, but like even in the food world, don't write like this, I don't think. Not to say that people don't write re- like bad reviews in like food writing, because I think more so than in art criticism. Oh, 100%. People yeah. do write bad reviews, but they don't write them in this way, I don't think. Like, not on, not with this, like, I'm writing about Disham like it's a gallery, you know, I think. And I don't think it's the done thing. And it's certainly not with the clickbait title. And so I think people just kind of pooed themselves a little bit when they saw this. And like, there were a lot of like um, NRIs, like non resident Indians. Um, which is like a way of describing, not people, I'm not an NRI, I'm like a weirdo in diaspora, like I'm just like a little diaspora beg. But um, an NRI is someone who was born in India and then moved away, right? Like an expat, basically. Um, There were a lot of NRIs basically being like, oh my God, are you joking? We love this, it reminds us of home. Which fair play, live your life, but like that's got nothing to do with me because our cultural experiences are not the same. Like, I simply do not, like, I'm a Londoner. Like, it's just different. Um, And so I think there are a lot of people basically, I don't know, getting quite angry in (laughs) a way that I think maybe, I think came from an assumption that I was like speaking for the community when it's like, I've never ever spoken for anyone other than myself. And even then I'm really not willing to back myself in like any serious way. Um, I hate Dushram, not we hate. Yeah. Imagine if it was, there would have been yeah. murder. Everybody <laughs> hates Disham. <laughs> yeah, there would have been murder. But it, I mean, there still was. There was. Like, it kind of like it kicked off basically, and I just kind of left it. But then Sunday evening, we get an Instagram DM from at Disham. <laughs> verified blue check this blue tick mark this was not a hoax um Disham itself was actually shall I read out the no that's a bit too far isn't it like just that it was a bit far. the Disham account basically messaged to say hey read the text um really interesting do you want to have a chat about this from Shamil who's the guy that owns Disham and I was like first off no because I think he's going to fight me. I think I'm getting set up. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to walk through the Covent Garden, um, walk through into like the um, Disham, the one in Covent Garden. Is it Covent Garden? I haven't got a clue. I've been the... to London in like 10 years at this point. <laughs> is it, where's the, there's the big Disham in, um, God knows. I'm going to go into a Disham and he's going to be there with his boys and like a big baseball bat ready to fuck me up. Like, <laughs> I thought I was I was done for. But I think, do you know who messaged me as well? Jonathan Nunn of Littles, who was basically like, I, I was kind of like, not expecting to go anywhere. And then my hero, loved Jonathan Nunn, DM'd and was like, love that. Shamil, my 
like message you and I was like he did <laughs> but um, I think yeah basically I was like first off no but then I had to think about it and I was like actually if I had written this about like an exhibition and a gallery did like did get in touch I'd be like yeah why not let's go have a chat so let me approach this in the same way that I would approach a gallery like reaching out to me he's probably also not going to beat me up because he's a legitimate businessman and like, yeah. you know what I mean <laughs> but um so we went to coffee we went for coffee and like had a chat and where did you go for coffee not Disham. okay that's an important part of the story <laughs> He didn't want to trigger you. Yeah. It was neutral ground. It wasn't. <laughs> we met in neutral ground somewhere in East London. He, um, oh, I don't know if I can say this. He brought a printout of the text that he'd underlined and annotated. And he'd written like, no, exclamation mark in the margins. But like, I, I don't think you understand, Gab. I love that. I love that. That's the highest level of respect you could give me as a writer. You right? paid so much attention that you got you printed it out. Printers are fucking the worst piece of technology anyone could ever use. <laughs> you put yourself through printing something out. Then you got a pen. And then you sat there and you thought about it. And you made notes. That is the highest honour. Like he didn't just read it on the toilet while he was like in between jobs. Like he, he was read on a couch it or at a desk. A desk. He was at a desk. Yeah. With a pen yeah. in hand, like really taking it in. And like that blew my mind. Because can you imagine, like, all the times I've written, like, I could I could easily write, I hate the tape. I could really easily write that. I've probably written that like seven times over in different ways. Can you imagine if Maria Balshaw DM'd me at tape, hey, really interesting, would love to have a chat, took me out for coffee and has underlined every text, even every line or whatever and written no in the margin if she'd done that like i'd have no you, choice but to take her seriously do you remember the last person who did that to me it was quite a while ago yes alistair hudson yeah of whitworth middlesbrough institute of modern art fame mm-hmm. i was critic in residence and i'd written yeah. something and he just did not agree with what i'd said and he went through it wasn't pen it wasn't print out he didn't take himself to the printer because we were in different cities to be fair but he like annotated it and sent me an email and i i loved it i was so excited <laughs> but is, anyone like... listening is going to be like right this is how i need to engage the white pube yeah stop printing out the sunday texts this is how to get our pictures. attention <laughs> like if you want to send us hate mail simply do not leave like a sarky comment on instagram we don't pay, we don't read them if you want to really affect us you can send us like fax us like fax back like bank fax back yeah 100 <laughs> yeah that's so a... an annotated version of our text underlined this is complete fucking shit like that that's a way to get our attention really get the people going like <laughs> us <laughs> like, being the people <laughs> <laughs> like the people just us two yeah <laughs> but um I think even like not even being facetious about it it was I think really thoughtful like that was a level of like mm-hmm. engagement with what I was saying even if he didn't agree I was still kind of there knowing that he might as the proprietor owner and proprietor of Disham I was aware that he might not agree with my 
text called I hate Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> this did not come as a surprise to me. <laughs> but like, I, I still really appreciated that he, yeah, took the time, took the thought and like really paid attention to what I was saying. And so we spent hours at this coffee shop outside in like September, October, like al fresco, because this was still, London was still in like half lockdown or like this was um, level something, level something before. what the levels mean, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we went into like a level something lockdown or like half lockdown before we went into that. Um, so you could only be outside really. So we're like outside, al fresco, freezing, yelling about colonialism at each other. And it was like, I was having a time of my life. Like, <laughs> that's my <laughs> idea of a good time. If I have any hobbies, it's sm chain smoking, <laughs> drinking red wine, complaining about colonialism. That's me, sorted. That's my <laughs> idea of a Sunday night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I was loving life, but that was like, yeah, that was, yeah, a level of seriousness I wasn't expecting. And, um, I don't know. I, I think having that conversation with him, as well as like a conversation with myself and my own thoughts through the text, I think I, I reconciled that these places exist and they serve a purpose. Like he doesn't agree with me. He doesn't have to. He's like running a business, employing people. Like, again, not to be a dish of apologist. I sound like a fucking girl boss there. Like, like it's, it's fine. But that's like his, him and what he does, his priorities. But, fun fact, afterwards, he sent me a Christmas present. <laughs> he sent a me story. a copy of the edition. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me the edition cookbook for Christmas, um, <laughs> which is really sweet. And it, like, I got a little, um, it came in Amazon packaging. <laughs> <laughs> cheapskate imagine being the owner of the company and buying your own book through Amazon to send to someone <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it was just like move. a box that he I don't know oh, if it was just okay. a box that he repurposed but it made me laugh like I really kind of like <laughs> it just tickled me I was like I love this this is my scale of interaction like yes um, and then he writes like a um, end of year text every December. I don't think, oh no, I, that wasn't it. But um, he sent a version to me where he, he mentioned that he was now changing the description of Vardapal on the menu because I mentioned that it was a shit description. That's exciting. So when anyone asks me, oh, like as a critic, do you feel like you've changed anything? Do you have Not any in a gallery, impact? but that one, that one, Menu description in Bisham. That's the one head I can mount on my wall and point to and say, I got that. That's, I did that. <laughs> Only thing though that I've actually fucking changed. But I can die happy. Put that on my gravestone. <laughs> That's so funny. That's huge though. Like we, we've often had these moments where we say, like, do, do we make a difference? Do we have any impact? I think we sometimes have like personal impact on on artists and creatives who feel like empowered and like I love yeah. that but when it comes to the subjects that we're writing about we're just speaking to the wall most of the time mm -hmm. um so like again I, I hope that doesn't come off as facetious to any anyone listening because it is like 
<laughs> sincerely no, yeah. good. <laughs> I don't mean that in any like you're not like taking a position of like that's not hyperbole. It does feel like we're talking to the wall every single week. Yeah. Yeah. I had another question uh, when I was th- when you were reading it out. I was thinking, wow, this is so well researched, uh, and I wondered how, like, how do you know this to write about it? You know, the the background. Did you do any extra reading before the text? Did you just know this stuff? Like, what is your research process or like planning process before a text like this? Just because. I think it might be interesting to some people who mm. maybe aspire to write texts on this scale as well for themselves, but don't know where to start. Well, first of all, oh my God, love that you're looking to me for an example of how to write on the scale. Like, that's really flattering because I, I write, so I, I can't lie. My first reaction is just like, no, I just know this stuff. Because like most of the history that comes out is like just, a history that I'm aware of only because it's like part of my family history, but also like other people I know, like it's just in the same way that like, I don't know, if you're Portuguese, you know, loads about custard tarts or something. Like it's just, as an Indian, you're aware that like curry houses exist in a certain way because of certain things. And it's interesting because, so my dad is Bengali, my mum is Gujarati. And the way that I'm writing about those two like, um, I don't know, like waves of immigration, like coming from directly from the motherland and like coming directly from like East Africa, like the motherland via East Africa. That's like on both sides. So like I'm kind of like yeah, aware of those two things because of that. Um, like Bengali um, Indian curry houses. I don't know, as a Bengali person, you kind of know that that's not like Bengali food, and that you can recognise that those are Bengali uncles outside yelling at you on Brick Lane, and you're like. What do you expect from me? Um, and so, yeah, I think in my mind, I'm like quick to dismiss that there is research there because I was like, nah, I just know it off the top of my nut. It's not that deep. Like, it's not like history or research. But it is, to be honest, I need to rate myself because I did actually look at Wikipedia pages. Such <laughs> <laughs> <Such> anticlimax. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking I made a note parliamentary archives and I thought how does Serena know what's in parliamentary archives wikipedia wikipedia yeah I swear it's to God. valid it is valid and do you know what actually wikipedia is a better is a more reliable academic source than people give it credit for because it's citations and like peer reviewed literally peer reviewed because the peers are the public Right, Wikipedia, to be honest, yeah. Um, but I mean, look, the, the, that might be false about the parliamentary records, but like, it was on Wikipedia and the link's there. <laughs> like, the link's there. I checked it. I checked it. It's definitely true because I looked at the, the link that was linked on Wikipedia and it took me to the parliamentary thingy. And I saw... And the link yeah, was no, actually to the white pew. <laughs> No, yeah, it was, yeah, I just checked the Wikipedia page for like Asian migration to Britain or something. Sorry, that is an anticlimax, isn't it? No, it's fine. It's fine. I just wondered. Um, I don't know any. I mean, I, I did. I do remember thinking 
like this wasn't the first food text I'd written and this was a period in time where I was really interested in writing about food as a subject like before this I'd written like maybe two or three texts and I was like quite invested in it less so now um but I, I think at the time I just had a lot of thinking to do around food and like the way I thought was through writing and like it makes sense it was useful at the time I'm not saying that like I'm less interested now because I'm like hanging out my hat and it's like an emotional thing just like it served the purpose whatever um but I remember thinking like someone must have written about this as a thing like there must be something I can read that will help that will give me like a place to start from like someone must have written about like diaspora aesthetic like diaspora art aesthetics for like um, authenticity and like fast casual I could not find a single thing like a single other article and there probably is it's probably out there but I just I really couldn't come across it I, I really searched I thought maybe Vittles would have written something like there would have been something commissioned and the most I could find was like there was something on Vittles there was like um something about Asian pubs and there was something as well Kieran Tapa had written something about Asian pubs as well but that's the most I could find just about like Asian pubs um Desi pubs like the black country history of like that's the only aspect that's the only angle that people write about authenticity and British Indian food like when mm. it does it well when it's got like, like god that I want to go to an Asian thing. pub so bad now I didn't I in my stupidity I just didn't even know that that was a thing yeah they're incredible you but you've been to kind of a sports bar which is like the I've been to a sports bar and it was so fun and the food that was the first time I ever ate like Manchurian as a flavor we need to tell the story properly Gabrielle like we need to set the scene so we were in Leicester we'd just done a film screening like a proper art thing we went out to Blue Peter in Leicester on like Melton Road and like I remember telling a friend of ours that is from Leicester, like, oh, we're at a sports bar in, on Melton Road. And they were like, oh, which one? We said Blue Peter. And they were like, are you, are you out of your fucking mind? That's like, that's like so, that's, you're a woman. Hello. And like, <laughs> for context, a lot of these sports bars are like really very like hyper masculine, like uncle spaces. Um, so like being a woman there is like kind of quite odd. Like you, you, you kind of just have to like catch on to yourself a bit I think they thought we were eating alone um and yeah um but it was Blue Peter and Nesta and we were having our little veg Manchurian and then all of a sudden an uncle in the in the corner starts singing he's having a concert and then we go upstairs and there's a banquet hall and there's a man singing into a microphone to a crowd of five people it was really all the lights were blue I remember that because it was up where the toilets were what a vibe. What a vibe. Such a good food. I love a sports bar. It was really good, yeah. And there was a car outside, wasn't there? And the registration, what was it? We took a picture. One, two, three, art or something. One, two, three, art. <laughs> they had a live, laugh, love sticker on the um, doorway as well. It was It was just like, it was inviting us in. It was saying, you two, <laughs> you can come in. I will say, like, that Leicester sports bar aesthetic is not the same in London. It's a lot more shitty. I'm also in... I don't know if I can actually it's say It's shittier in London or Leicester? It's shittier in London. Like, Leicester's ones are a lot more glamorous, I think, because 
that Leicester is just like Asian central. Like every single person in Leicester is Gujarati. I don't think anyone else exists in, in Leicester. Like white people really are in the minority. Like you think London's a minority majority city? Like go to Leicester. Like it, <laughs> fucking back-to-back Patels. Um, <laughs> like I, and I think there's something about that um, concentration of like Gujarati central. Um, in London, it's different. Like sports bars are kind of like in the suburbs where it is kind of like Asian central, like places like Harrow, Kenton, Kingsbury. Um, even around where my mom lives, which I'm not gonna bait out on the podcast because some of you are nutters. Like, even places like that, like it, it's Asian central, but it's still a bit more low key. I just think like Londoners, Asian Londoners are just a bit different to like say, Birmingham Asians or like Leicester Asians I say this as someone who lives with a Birmingham Asian like we're just different like the way we like are culturally conditioned and like interact with our culture is just different like do you think you'll write about food again I know you alluded to kind of making peace with it a bit um but you know if, if anyone is listening because they really enjoyed this text and they want more and they want you to cover other things like can they expect that from you? Question mark, question mark. Well, I was going to say no, but um, like I don't think I'll write about it in this way. I don't think I'm going to write like another, I think I think this was my main food-based grievance. It's dealt with. But I've written about food, yeah. I've written about it since, and I've got, I don't know if I can actually say this, because I don't know if this is out, but I've written about, I've written an essay about sports bars for a reputable, it's just very exciting, TBC. I've written um, a text about sports bars and it's, I'm really pleased with it. Um, But I think that's maybe the way that I'll write about food, not like in this grievance-based or even that like super um, personal way. I think I've like processed all my thoughts out. I'm now just interested in like food-based spaces. Food-based spaces? (laughs) food adjacent spaces like and I don't know saying that maybe I'll just write like a an essay about blueberries just blueberries as a thing as a cultural phenomenon (laughs) the white food um Sunday text um after the next one I'm writing will be a treatise on blueberries have you ever had frozen blueberries like with your yeah yeah you're nodding yeah love that I mean I think if you freeze any berry based fruit including grapes in my mind it's adjacent very adjacent this might be the most the most controversial thing i say in this podcast episode i believe i believe that grapes are berries um they're a kind of berry grapes That feels like I'm saying something like cereal is a kind of soup, you know? Like, it feels like I'm saying something like that. But what is grape? Blueberry is berry. Blueberry. What is grape? This is going to be one of those moments that I edit, and this is what goes on Instagram. (laughs) No one knows knows. where this fits into the conversation. So they watch the whole... (laughs) They listen to the whole podcast, waiting for this moment, and then they go, oh... We're going to find out that grapes are actually a vegetable. If tomatoes are a fruit, then grapes must be a vegetable. What is grape? (laughs) 
It's a berry? <gasps> a berry, typically green, purple or black, growing in clusters on a grapevine, eaten as fruit and used in making wine. I really thought it's that a was berry. a controversial statement. It turns out I was actually fucking correct. <sighs> Calm down. It's really not that deep, Serena. I think I'm like Miss Fucking Hot Take. And it turns out I'm just <laughs> spitting pure truth. Pure I should... They should have. They should. They should get railings built around me, like I'm some modern day Buddha. I swear. I swear to God. Grape is berry. <laughs> Grape is a berry, and cereal is a soup. And on that note, thank you so thank much you for, for listening. listening. Um, if you want to find the written version of the text Zarina read today, it's on the white pube, um, under the food section. If you enjoyed this and you want to listen to more, please. Uh, let us know which old texts you'd like us to revisit. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you especially to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we have a Patreon where you can support us at like £1 a month. And our hope is that all those £1 add up and that's our wage. We did just start a Patreon exclusive Discord server, which now, I mean, for £1 a month, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting stuff. You can argue about grapes in there. You can with us, yeah. With us directly, and we'll. If discuss... you want to send us your annotated copies of our texts, do that in, in the, the Patreon. Just put it in the Discord server. Yeah. That's ideal. We'll start a channel that's just annotated texts, <laughs> and we'll just have it out. <laughs> and then I'll annotate your annotations, and we'll just go from there. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening, and we will see you on the next episode of the podcast. Bye. Bye. Bye.